Well, this morning we start our Advent season as we approach uh, Christmas and approach the celebration of our birth of our Savior. And so this morning we wanted just to kind of focus in our eyes and our, and our hearts a little bit around this idea of hope. And uh, so you'll notice we have lots of candles here this morning, but uh, this candle this morning is going to represent that idea of hope, uh, the hope of Jesus. I just want to read a, a quick passage of scripture from Colossians this morning. Colossians chapter one, it says this, it says, starting in verse 15, it says, he is the image of the invincible God, the firstborn of all creation for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things and by him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have the first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. You know who I'm talking about this morning? Jesus, right? If you go over to uh, a few passages later, uh, verses 26, 27, Paul says this. He says, the, min- the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Verse 27 says, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of his mystery, which is who? Which is Christ Jesus in, in you. Which is Christ Jesus in you, the hope of of glory. So this morning we celebrate the hope of glory. And so let's wrap our minds around that as we enter the Christmas season. This morning we're going to ask uh, Ed is Ed Trenner's here with us again. And so Ed, would you come up and deliver the word with us this morning? I just got here. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, fun. Well, I uh, I regard this a uh, great honor to be with you this morning. So this is good. I I tell Joey always when I come in. I said I've uh, I've been. Um, I've been in four, five different churches for about nine weeks in a row. Uh, now, filling the pulpit, whatever that means, I'm not sure. But I get to open the word and talk with uh, with uh, God's people. And um, but I tell Joey, you have the best worship. I really enjoy coming here for your worship. This is good. Well, this morning I want to focus on a subject. Uh, called a biblical world view. Uh, when we get up in the morning and um, and we go about our business during the day, or we may uh, see the news on TV or read it in a paper or uh, hear it on the radio or something when we're traveling around, but uh, we interpret everything that comes to us in the course of the day through how we perceive our world. And uh, I've had the privilege of traveling a great deal in our world, and it's amazing how different um, we are to most of the world. 
I divide it up into a third and two-thirds world, a third of the world in, in North America and Northern Europe, and two-thirds world, all the rest of the globe. Um, and I, I look at that, uh, I suppose, mainly from an, an economic and a uh, influential posture, uh, given that distinction, but two-thirds of the world thinks about life a whole lot different than we do. Uh, we're very tangible in the way we see things. Uh, there's a cause and effect to everything that happens. Uh, uh, everything tends to be pretty physically oriented. I think it has a lot to do with uh, our research, our science and our research, is that we look at the things that are through eyes trying to understand how these things mechanically work. So we give explanation to everything in a physical, mechanical way. When, in fact, two-thirds of the world understand that there's a spiritual dynamic that's going on in life, all of life. We look at that when we travel and often say, "Mm, how superstitious. But it's amazing to me when I seek to share the gospel, when I seek to share the story of Christmas, of Easter, the meaning of Christ and his coming and his death, how that falls on deaf ears here. But when I travel in Southeast Asia, it is a welcome word that there's a God who created everything. Really? And that he knows me, cares about me, loves me, even offered of himself and his son for me, knows everything about my life and still is willing to offer forgiveness and mercy and grace and love and embrace to me. They just cannot understand that because the spirit world to them is all against them. That's why you have these little altars every place when you travel throughout Southeast Asia, because they're seeking to appease the spirits of their ancestors or the spirits of the region, depending on which country you're in. But they live their life in fear and have no sense of joy and hope. And when we share that the God who created all things, a spirit being, controls the world with love and grace and mercy and justice. They're all ears. And uh, so this morning I want to uh, address our biblical worldview. It runs contrary to a a lot of what we experience in the course of our week uh, and how we perceive things, see things, or how the people around us perceive them. And uh, I just think this will be helpful to us as uh, we seek to find our focus and our life in Christ. Um, let's begin with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. That is a biblical world view. Contrary to the vast majority of people that you run into in the course of a day. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we keep reading in Genesis, he created everything that is. Isaiah, uh, prompted by the Spirit of God, spoke the words of God when he said, To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal? says the Holy One. There's no one, nothing like him. He is the one and only. 
David describes how personal this relationship can be with the God creator with whom there is no one you can liken to him. I want to read another one in Isaiah here first. Lift up your eyes on high and see who's created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. The God creator who made all those stars in night and leads them has a name for them. And not one is missing. And David then spoke of this intimate relationship with, with this God when he said in Psalm 139, You, God, know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. This God creator who created all things knows each of us intimately. Knew what I was going to say, knows what I'm going to say before it even comes out of my mouth. And I wonder how many times I I make him go, ooh, (laughs) before I even say it. But he knows us intimately. He goes on in Psalm 139. He says, you, uh, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. Excuse me, next verse down. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. You are always present with me. No matter where I find myself in the course of a day, a night, any day of the week, any year, wherever I may find myself, God is present, David is saying. I used to think that it was pretty noble on my part when I would extend myself to travel overseas and take Jesus to people who never heard And then I was reflecting on this passage once, and I got to thinking, I said, Ed, I think maybe your perception of God is maybe skewed a little bit here. He was there long before I showed up. I just got to flesh it out in some ways to them, or maybe verbalize, or point out to them the evidence of God present with them there all the time, or his grace and his mercy and his provision for them in their life. But God was already there. I didn't have to take God with me. I remember a book that came out when I was in my college years. It was called, Are You Running With Me, Jesus? (laughs) I'm going, I think you misstated that. Maybe it should be, Am I running with you, Jesus? Because I know you're here. (laughs) Where's my head? David continued and he said, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance 
And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. God has a book that my entire life is recorded in it. And in that book are the days that I haven't even experienced yet. God knows. I have a friend who, um, uh, well, actually, as of this week, I have three friends who could no longer uh, handle the stress. Well, I have more than three. Maybe. I know I have three friends. Uh, They were desperate. Okay, Uh, they could no longer handle the stress, the press, whatever the expectations of the work kind of situation. There was change in structures and people and all kinds of stuff. But uh, they all three in the last few weeks have resigned from their role and are presently unemployed. And uh, feeling a little relieved and anxious all at once. And. uh, I got to reflect on this passage uh, with him that uh, don't forget who made you, who knit you together in your mother's womb, who knows you intimately. And don't forget he has promised to provide for you out of his riches and glory. Keep your head in the right place. Uh, Being anxious about whether you have food or clothing or a roof over your head doesn't add one cubit. And I think that's that length of the knuckle right there. But it doesn't add an inch to your life, being anxious. But seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Those are the kinds of promises that we hang on to because of the God that we know, our worldview. There is a God who created all things, who created me and my mother's womb, who knows me and is involved in my life and guiding me, knows everything that's headed in the future in my life, looking out for me. He causes all things to work together for good. That worldview offers hope. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, Jesus said to the the Samaritan woman. That would be the first of three things I want to communicate about our worldview, that God is and that he's spirit. Ever-present, ever-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign. In our world. Let's go back to Genesis. And look at the record of the beginnings of man. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 it says. Then the Lord formed man of dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Now, we could say mankind, uh, men, women, children. I, you know, I don't know how we bring those. Kind of, you know, when I say man in, in the context of the message this morning, I mean all of us uh, genderless. Is, is that PC? But I, we come down and I say uh, God made mankind. He made woman out of the sight of man. 
and the two produced two boys who didn't get along. (laughs) But you get the picture. But God took some mud and made us. So I got to thinking, we're nothing but a mud gingerbread man that God breathed life into. Life is a gift from God. It's his breath in us that gives us life. And the life which I live right now is not all that I'm going to be living. There's a statement in Hebrews that gives me a clue. It says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once. And after this comes judgment. So I understand from this verse that I'm going to live and I'm going to die. And then there's something more. There's an accounting that I will give in my life. This afterlife is described in part in two passages I want to look at with you. In John chapter 14, remember it was the last night that Jesus was together with his disciples there in the upper room before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and there was arrested the next day crucified. That last night with his disciples, he said to them, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is a world view. I travel the world. There's a whole wide range of perspectives of, of, about life and afterlife. None hold any hope except Jesus. He said to his disciples who were still totally unaware of what's going to happen. How many times he'd already said, they're going, to, they're going to arrest me, they're going to crucify me, and I'm going to rise on the third day. And they still didn't hear him. I mean, it's recorded several times prior to this evening when he was together with them. And he said, don't be troubled. Uh, They weren't troubled yet. (laughs) He said, don't be troubled. I'm going to go, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. Meaning that there's another place somewhere else (laughs) that there is life. But I'm going to come back, and when I do, I'm going to gather you, and we're going to be together in this new place. In his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, Paul compares his physical body as a decaying tent in which he dwells. And he looks forward to a new eternal house that his being can dwell in. Paul is not his body. Um. Um, my parents uh, gave birth to me, my mom, 
Um, they named me. Um, I have grown up all these years. Uh, I have my appearance has changed a little bit over the years. The brain is still a little screwy all these years, and 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 I take pride in it. And so you know, I just but I am not my body. Our four-year-old granddaughter was with us uh, when when Carla's uh, father passed away. And at the memorial service, they had an open casket and a viewing. And people were going by. I, I feel really strange doing that. It's a person's prerogative. You can do what you want. But that, I feel uncomfortable with that. But regardless, they were all walking by this open casket. And um, um, my granddaughter, Lily, said, said, Papa, we go. And I thought, I don't know if this is a good thing, you know, for my four-year-old granddaughter to be looking at a dead body in a, in a box. Uh, and I said, so let's ask your mama. So I asked our daughter, I said, what do you, what do you think about Lily going up? She said, oh, if she wants, that's okay. I'm going, I wish you'd have said no. But so I picked her up and we got in line and we walked by and she looked down into the box and she saw his body there and she said, he's sleeping. And I said, I said, no, Lily, he's he's not here now. Said, yeah, Papa, he's right there. I said, no, no, Lily, that's that's not Papa. That's just his body. And she didn't get it. And so I grabbed her ear and I shook it. And I said, is this Lily? No, Papa, that's my ear. And then I took her arm and I said, is this Lily? She said, no, Papa, that's my arm. Oh, so where's Lily? And then she got it. I said, somewhere in all of this, can I understand there's an eternal character about all of us that will go on beyond this life and be somewhere. And a biblical worldview tells us that we who trust in God and his grace and his mercy and his son's death on our behalf will spend eternity with him. And if out of our own arrogance, our own rebellion, our own neglect, we choose not to trust in God's grace and mercy, we will spend eternity apart from him. That's called hell. And an eternity with God is called heaven. It's a biblical world view. Paul makes a statement there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built with human hands. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body here, we are away from the Lord. We live now by faith, 
not by sight. But I have that hope that when I'm done in this body, I'm going to get a body that doesn't decay, that doesn't have aches and pains, who suffers no more. I have a new body waiting for me. That gets me up in the morning with groans, but still gets me up in the morning. The description of our living in a tent and the description of us having a place that Jesus is preparing for us communicates to us that man, like God, is a spiritual being. And that places a different kind of accountability on us before God. That places on us a different kind of awareness of who we are, how we face life. I am not what's rejected by somebody else. Because I can't play baseball as well as somebody and I don't get chosen. Doesn't reflect on me. It reflects on my shell that can't perform like I'd like it to perform. That may be a strange illustration, but I'm just what I'm trying to communicate here is that I am more than how what I appear. And you are more than what you appear. You are eternal. And so that causes me to want to make my choices a little more careful. Knowing that I'm not just now me and I can let things pass because what I am and what I do is with me for eternity. I'm going to go back to the garden again and I want to meet another spirit being. It says in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, the serpent um, misquoted God that he didn't say you couldn't eat from any tree. And Eve picked up on that. And she said, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And she didn't get it right either. She added to it. It wasn't that you couldn't eat it, but you can't touch it either. And I'm guessing that she probably embellished that for her own benefit so that she wouldn't hang around it. But you know how good that did. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. Implying that God went to all this effort to make you and and, uh, shape you out of your husband's rib and, and, and created him. Certainly he wouldn't create you just to die. And he says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Misquoting God. 
making a statement that God knows what that means for you. And he just doesn't want you to be like him. And he knows full well what that means because he experienced that for himself prior to the garden. I found it interesting doing some research about Satan. I found a couple of new passages for me that I had not put together before. It says in um, Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 and 13. In reference to Satan, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. The cue to us, the description that followed was in reference to the serpent. He goes on and says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there, God said. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. This spirit being Satan, the serpent, a created angel of God to serve God. Perfect in wisdom and in beauty. Highly gifted to serve God, but proud. Isaiah, in a parallel passage describing Satan, Isaiah 14 says, You said in your heart, Satan said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Reflecting back to the words of uh, the serpent to to Eve in the garden. Uh, He doesn't want you to eat that fruit because you'll be like him. You'll know the difference between good and evil. You'll be wise like God, and he doesn't want you to do that. He's still smartened from the time he got removed. Well, what happened then? God cast him out from the mountain of God. In Revelation chapter 12, we have a description of what took place in that departure. It says, and there was a war in heaven, Revelation 12, 7. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan. We got all their words, their names in one spot now. Who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And my addition to that, and he roams the earth creating havoc for you and me throughout our life. Not just to be an annoyance, but to distract us and separate us from God. Satan is a spiritual being. A fallen angel. And so what I've presented you to this point is that there are three spiritual beings here. God, man, 
and Satan. And we find them in an ongoing conflict. Ephesians chapter 6 begins to make sense in the light of the worldview I just gave you. It says in Ephesians 6.10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Why? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. I have read that passage I don't know how many times. I'm going, I don't get it. I don't know what that war is about. I get irritated on occasion. I may get discouraged on occasion. Disappointed. But a battle of spiritual, this kind of size. And yet when I understand that God created Satan who rebelled and cast him out of heaven and he roams the earth seeking to deceive those who would be followers of God. That's pretty, pretty global uh, warfare. I have a friend for 15 years struggles with the idea of God being a reality and having some accountability to him. And Satan's done a number in his heart, his mind, his perception of life. Has trouble with this biblical worldview. But in tears, three weeks ago, he said to me, Ed, I want to believe I just can't do it. I'm not done. That's a long progress from the first comment he made to me that God is the creation of man. Because man needs a God. But that's the kind of struggle of warfare that's going on. It's eternal because we are eternal. So I need to take serious what I do and engage in that involves the gospel, that involves Jesus, involves my life and how I invest it. The last time I was here with you was not a very pleasant Sunday for me. Probably not for you either. But I do remember a lot of excitement about the message I brought to you. And I still hold it up. The whole warfare is a struggle against God and his agenda, the church. And the message I brought to you is that uh, the way Jesus is building his church is by helping us grow together in Christ. And I read to you Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 through 16. It says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth and speaking it in love. We're to grow up in him. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the working of each individual part. 
were to grow up in the head, Christ, from whom? The whole body, from Christ, the whole body is being fitted and held together by what everybody here participating supports. The simple message of uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, uh, Ephesians 4, uh, 1 Peter 4, is that we're all gifted. We're all essential to the body of Christ and we're all interdependent. We can't write anybody off. And I read in 1 Corinthians 12 that he places each one of us in the body just as he desires. And that calls on us to be submissive to him. And in being submissive to him, we find ourselves in a relationship with each other. But when we refuse to be submissive to him and take our own charge, then we create havoc for the body. And he said, this is a spiritual warfare we're about. This is a biblical worldview I'm talking about that I think sometimes we miss. And sometimes out of our own personal offense, we take a posture of the head and we're not the head. Jesus is the head. I just want to communicate that. He loves you so much. I don't know how God can do this. But Jesus knew you when he died on the cross. And knew what he was bearing for you so you could be right with God. That's our celebration. And and if I could say anything as you continue to move forward as a church, is keep submitting to the head, Jesus. And when things don't make sense, draw closer to him. And speak the truth and speak it in love with each other and participate in each other. Now, Tim, you did say I could do whatever the Spirit leads, so I told you I had five hours worth here. I won't do that to you. Ephesians 4, at the beginning of the chapter, it says, Walk in a manner worthy of your calling with humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's the church of Jesus Christ. And anything working against what Christ is doing in a manner that does not promote unity in Christ is not initiated by the Spirit of God. Now, with that statement, I'm not condemning anybody of belonging to Satan. But the one thing I want to close with here with you this morning is to understand Satan still has influence in the life of anyone who gives him room. Guard your heart. Paul said this concerning the Corinthians, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betroth you to one husband, so that to Christ the husband I might present you as a pure virgin. Paul was speaking of his relationship with the Corinthian church. He said, I introduced you to to your husband, the bridegroom, Christ. And you, church, are his bride. And I wanted to present you, I do want to present you as pure. 
But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That was Paul's concern for the church in Corinth. And no matter who we are, wherever we are in life, whatever church we're connected to, carry that with you. That God is concerned that we not lose the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ that produces unity. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he also, uh, Paul was saying, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for the sakes uh, in the presence of Christ so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Um, In the first letter to the Corinthians, um, uh, Paul told the church to put somebody out because of the immorality of their life. Time had passed in this, and there was great remorse and repentance that had taken, and that continued for some years. And then Paul wrote a second letter back and said, uh, receive the person back and forgive him. That'll take some doing for you. But that's the grace of God. The justice of God uh, is his to do and not ours. Mercy is his call or not. And that's all based on the repentance of of people. I just say that as another example of how do we function as a body. Satan always seeks to divide He appeals to our sense of self-righteousness, our fears, our personal desires. We must ask how our actions reflect submission to Christ and promote unity in the body. We are instructed to speak the truth in love, not half-truths or not lies that Satan generates. Jesus spoke harshly to the hypocritical Jewish religious leaders. Names were given to Satan in the scriptures. He's the liar, the father of lies. He's the angel of light in a disguise. He's the god of this world, and he blinds people. He's a roaring lion, and he seeks to devour, creates relational conflict. And he's the accuser. In Revelation, he's called the accuser of the brethren. And he accuses day and night. And in this, I have to believe the scriptures because Satan points his finger at me all the time. And I feel less than I feel guilty of. I regret this, whatever it is. And I have to remember in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid any condemnation that could come to me. He bore it on his body on the cross. We live in his grace. Don't deserve it. We deserve judgment. We deserve to be dust. But he's merciful and he's gracious and we represent him. Our life is a a treasure token to him of his grace and his mercy. Live in that. Don't let Satan go around pointing his finger at you. You should have. You didn't. You whatever. Said, Get lost. And it's amazing to me how that simple passage is like the roaring lion comes like that. And I quote, the judgment's already been done, accuser. And it's like pulls his teeth out. And all he can do is go. 
I said, yeah, roaring lion. We are on the winning team. (laughs) You know, we stand in him. And he calls on us to submit to him as our head and to follow him and to lead him and to, to be family together. One other example here. Jesus said uh, to his disciples, they were gathered up on a mountain in a moment that you remember in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, but who do you say that I am? Jesus asked. And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. But my father, a spiritual revelation to you, my father revealed it to you. I mean, that had to really puff up Peter. Among all the disciples that he competed with all the time, you find in conversation and you see it played out in the scriptures and the gospels. That had to puff Peter up just a little bit. That he got it right and Jesus acknowledged me. And Peter, little rock, (laughs) on your testimony, big rock, I'm going to build my church. That I am the Christ, the Messiah. It was only moments later. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. One who made profession of who Jesus is turns around under the influence. He's not Satan, but under the influence of Satan was going to get in the way of the reason that Jesus came. No one's going to hurt you. No one's going to touch you. And I just say that as an example of Satan's influence. That he can, you know, when we're tired, we do things we wouldn't normally do. And when we're proud and arrogant, we do things we normally wouldn't do. When we feel just in our own right and mind, we do things we, we wouldn't do if we'd stop and remember that we're not positioned to judge the church. We're not in a position to judge another brother. God judges us. But we have an enemy who's out there. He'll do anything to divide us and separate us and create havoc for us in our relationship with the Lord. And we don't have to give him room. James put it pretty clear. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And we can live in this warfare that Paul wrote to the Ephesians about. We can live in that warfare with this understanding that I stand in God and I stand in a submissive heart and a humble heart before him. And I say, Satan, bug out. Whatever that temptation is, I don't need you. You don't belong in me. 
I'm not going to let you destroy me or destroy somebody else. I'm making a choice to follow Christ. And it's interesting, immediately after that passage where Jesus called Peter down, the next statement is, men, do you want to be my disciple? Then deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. When we walk like that, we will be a people who honor each other, honor the Lord. We'll find ourselves living the kind of life that's described in here for the church. And thank you for enduring me an extra seven minutes. <laughs> but uh, I'm excited for you. God's got a good thing. I got a feeling uh, I really enjoy how you worship the Lord here. I'll say it again. Just hearing you sing this morning was a cue to me as to where's your heart, what's happening in your life. Be gracious to each other. Be gracious to those who are still unhappy. Just live your life with grace and mercy and obedience to Christ and submission to him and to each other. Good things are in store yet. More good things are in store for you. So, Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for your word. There's so many things you make clear to us that we can count on. Help us sort out the things that are difficult for us in life at times. I'm grateful, Lord, that... Your spirit who prompted the writing of this word prompts us in understanding it. Lord, help us to hunger and thirst for your word and for you. Thank you for your promises and your faithfulness to them. We trust in you. And when you do it because of Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.